Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.J. Jung Institute of Chicago. Go I know not whither, bring back I know not what, with Lois Kahn, Ph.D. This episode is part one of the series, The Psychology of Fairy Tales. Marie-Louise von Franz said, Fairy tales are the purest and simplest expression of collective unconscious processes. They represent the archetypes in their simplest, barest, and most concise form, and afford us the best clues to the understanding of the processes going on in the collective psyche. This series examines the psychological richness of the fairy tale. Each recording in the series focuses on a single fairy tale and explores the tale's insight into a particular psychological theme and inner logic. It was recorded in 1991. Suggested readings for this seminar are two books by Marie-Louise von Franz, Introduction to the Interpretation of Fairy Tales and the Problems of the Feminine in Fairy Tales, and The Legend of the Blue Bonnet by T. de Paula. Lois Kahn, Ph.D., was a practicing psychoanalyst in the Chicago area and Tennessee for almost 50 years. She also taught at the University of Chicago, in addition to lecturing as a psychologist throughout the world. For the complete series, follow the link in our show notes. And so I'd like to invite you now to fly away with me on the wings of imagination. Once upon a time, there was an unmarried king. And he had his whole cadre of archers. Uh, and they would go out into the woods and they'd hunt and so on and so forth. And he had a very favorite archer by the name of Fido. Because Fido could shoot like anything. You can you don't have to keep your eyes closed. If you want to, you can, but you can you can look around if you want to. Anyway. So because Fido was able to hit the mark so well, the king really liked him the best or loved him the best of all of his archers. So one day it happens that Fido was out in the woods and he shoots his gun and he hits a dove and she goes kaplunk out of the tree, lands on the ground and he's bagged another one. And so he's about to pluck off her head to shove her into the bag and she says, oh, please, oh, please, don't tear off my foolish head. Take me home and put me on your windowsill. And when I start to get sleepy, tap me sharply with your right hand and I will see that you have nice riches. Well, he says, you know, this is weird. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't think this has happened before that a bird has talked to, you know, with a human voice. So let's follow it through. He was really a brave one. So anyway, this happens. He takes her home, puts her on the ledge. And, uh, and uh, she starts to get sleepy. She tucks her head underneath her wing, and he goes, tunk, and she falls to the floor, and guess what happens? The most beautiful woman. She is so beautiful that nobody has ever been able to describe such beauty. It's gorgeous. Well, as happens in fairy tales, she says, after she watches him go off and do his thing in the, in the woods and come back every day and she sees he gets real weary you know kind of tramping through the tramping through the swamps and the woods and so forth she says you know 
I think what we need to do is to change our lifestyle. And so what I think you should do is try to get as much money gathered together as you possibly can and bring it home. So he goes about and he, you know, he dumps money out of his colleagues and his fellow archers and he goes to the bar and takes up a collection. And he finally comes home and he's got something like about $200. $200 and so she says, now I want you to take this money and go to the bazaar. And I want you to buy the finest silk threads and bring all the different kinds of colors. So he does as he's told. And then she says to him, when, uh, you know, when the, he gets home that night, she says, now it's very important because, of course, they've been married. I forgot to mention that. They're not just living together. In fairy tales, they do get married. Uh, anyway, she does say something. I forgot to tell you this before they got married. She says, now, you have known how to win me. Now, learn how to live with me. You shall be my, my chosen husband, and I shall be your God-given wife. That's a heavy-duty scene. Anyway, they marry and they live a very quiet life, as I say, and then she suggests, you know, that they need to change their lifestyle, so she goes and borrows the money and brings it back, and, she, and get, he fetches the thread from the bazaar, and then she says, all right, now, dear husband, be of good cheer, pray to God, and lie down to sleep. The morning is wiser than the, than the evening. So he does as he's told. And she goes out in the porch. She calls the genies out of her wonderful box or book or whatever it is. And they weave the most beautiful tapestry. Now, mind you, nothing is ever done just in moderation in fairy tales. It's got to be the most. And of course, that suits me just well. I like that kind of language. So this most magnificent tapestry. So she then sends him the next day to the bazaar. And she says, now, look, you take this tapestry to the bazaar and you sell it. But don't you put a price on it. You take the money that's offered to you. He does as he's told. Well, the merchants, it's such fine work that the merchants don't know how to put a price on it. It seems to be almost priceless. So this goes on, and more merchants gather, and they, they struggle, and they hassle. They don't know what to pay for this thing. Well, the steward comes, the king's steward comes, and he looks at it, and he says, Good gracious, that is fabulous. So while well, everybody else is dithering around, he says, hey, I'm going to give you $10,000 for that. So he does as he's, you know, so Fido does as he's told. He takes the money and he goes home and gives it to his wife. Well, I don't know what he does. It doesn't tell us. does something with the money. In the meantime, the steward now takes this to the king. And he says, do you want to see the, the buy I got in the, ferry, in, in the market today? He said, it is absolutely fabulous. So he opens it up, and what do you think the tapestry or the carpet is? It is a wonderful scene, an overview of the king's kingdom. He sees his castle, he sees the gardens, he sees... It's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And he says, oh, I must have it. I must have this. Well, you know, he is the king, and the steward doesn't have too much choice, but the king is an honorable man, quote-unquote, so he says, I'll give you $25,000 for it. Now, the guy bought it for 10000 He sells it for 25000 The Fedora only had about two hundred. Now, you see, that's what we call, you know, trading on the commodities market. You know, I mean, you really turn over the money fast. But anyway, the story continues. It's a very complex story. Now the steward seeks the archer because he wants something for himself. So he goes and finds the archer, goes to the house of the archer, walks in the house, and my gosh, there is the archer's wife. He is struck. Amazing. 
absolutely amazing. He falls so madly, passionately in love with her, and he is possessed. He can't eat, he can't sleep, he can't drink, he can't work, he can't play. I mean, he is possessed. The king says, what has gotten into you? He says, I have fallen in love. I mean, I have fallen in love. The king says, hey, you know, this has got to be some lady to have you kind of dithering around like this. So he goes and has a look. Well, I mean, you know, one look and he is gone. So now he loses his honorableness. He gets into what we would call chicanery. What happens is he needs to get rid of the archer. So he says to the steward, I've got a job for you to do. We've got to get rid of this guy because I want that woman. So he said, I want you to find out a way to get rid of her, get rid of him. Well, now, and he says, and if you don't find a way of doing it, you'll pay the price. Well, the guy had already lost his head over the woman, but he didn't want to really do it. So he goes and finds uh, the old crone in, in the street somewhere in the bazaar. And he says, hey, you know, lady, I got a trouble, and you've got to try to help me find out how to get rid of this archer. So she says, first task, tell the archer to go to the thrice nine lands, to the thrice tenth kingdom, to the island, and there to catch the stag with the golden horns. That's a far piece. So the king gives Fido the archer these instructions, and he gives him the oldest ship. It's a ship that's been retired from the Navy for over 30 years. It's not very seaworthy. And in addition, they conscript the biggest drunken sailors that they can find. And the idea is that it's going to take, I don't know how many years to get there and back, but the thing is the, the ship will only last about a month on the sea. It'll sink, and everybody will drown, and that's that, and he's got a, new, he's got a widow that he can take on, on as his queen. Well, <clears throat> the archer, of course, is, uh, you know, in spite of the fact that he does everything he's told, he's not a dummy. He figures out there's something, you know, kind of screwball here. So, of course, his wife says to, to, to go and sleep and pray to God and that the, that the morning is wiser than the evening. And she calls upon her genies and they quickly go and get the stag and they bring the stag back and it's in their courtyard. And so in the morning, then, the, then uh, here is the uh, Fido, he's got to go on the trip. But before he goes on the trip, he's got this big crate and he takes the stag actually on the boat. They go out and he's got these casks and, the, and, and he keeps the sailors drunk and they're happy. They love it. And they go out for so many days and come back. And the king said, hey, wait a minute. You know, I mean, this just didn't work. He said, you were supposed to do a task. He said, I did. I brought you the, gold, the stag with the golden horn and the golden monster. Well, now, come on, you know, that's just not going to do it. So, again, the steward is sent off to find out what to do. Now the old crone says, uh, well, I'll tell you. Now what he has to do is go, I know not whither, and bring back, I know not what. And he says, and mind you, if you fail... By my sword, your head will roll. The king says to Fido, well, poor fellow, he's really sad and despondent when he gets these instructions. And he goes to his wife. He says, you know, because of your beauty, all of this misfortune comes to me. And so she says, well, you know, you have to go on the trip because her genies didn't have any solution. She doesn't know where this place is. 
So she gives him a ball and a handkerchief. And she said, follow the ball. Wherever the ball goes, you follow the ball. And then whenever you wash your face, you dry it with this handkerchief. And so the journey begins. And so we follow the bouncing ball. And when they get to a big river, it becomes a bridge. And they get, oh, you know, I mean, it's just magical, magical. And one day, he comes to this beautiful, beautiful palace. And the ball goes right up to the door and goes right in the house. And you think, well, you know, I mean, usually you knock and say howdy doody or something, get invited in. But he's following the ball, and so he goes in, and these three lovely ladies are there and say, hey, who are you? What are you doing? What's it all about? You know, let's, let's get down to, to brass tacks. He says, you know, look, I am real tired. And so how about if you feed me and let me kind of rest for a bit? Oh, sure, no no problem. So anyway, he washes his face. They give him a hand towel. He says, no, thanks. I'll use my little handkerchief. And they see the handkerchief, and they said, where'd you get that? And then they call their mother. And so he tells the story. Well, would you believe they were, uh, those, those three girls were his wife's sisters. These are his sister's-in-law and his mother-in-law. <clears throat> well, he tells the story of what his task is. Mother-in-law says, wow, you know, that's, I don't think I know what that's all about. So she calls the birds and the beasts and the, and, the, and, the, and the insects, and they cover all over the earth. And she says, you know, have you heard of this place? Uh, go, I know not whither, and bring back, I know not what. I, you know, you know where it is? No, nobody had heard of it. They hadn't come across that place. And so she then gets her giants to take her and goes out into the middle of the ocean. She says, I want you to take me to the place in the ocean that is bottomless. So she goes there calls all the fishes up, and nobody, none of the fishes have heard. So she says, hmm, and then all of a sudden there's a blah. She looks and hears a rickety old frog. And this rickety old frog says, you know, seems to me, I've heard of a place like that. Well, as it would happen then, this mother-in-law says, okay, she takes a jar, puts milk in it, puts the frog in the milk. I, don't, I didn't know that frogs like milk until I read this story. And then uh, she, he carries this, and wherever they go, the frog is, is the guide. There's a river of fire. The frog gets big and big and huge and, you know, leaps over and so on. But anyway, they finally get to this place. I know not whether... And in this place, I know not whither, we discover that what has happened is that he has to kind of change himself, and he sneaks in and hides himself in a cupboard. Because the frog says, when you get inside, don't be seen, but you watch and hear everything that goes on. And then you do exactly what happens. He hides in the cupboard. It's all dark. As he goes into this kind of cave, it's all dark. And so, what happens is, these two old guys come, and they clap their hands, and they say, Smut Razum, feed us, and bring us some drink. A wonderful crystal chandelier comes on, and there's a beautiful banquet table, and these wonderful wines, and these old guys sit there, and they slurp it up, and, you know, they kind of chatter back and forth. And then they leave, and everything disappears. So, the door comes out, 
And he says, Smut, brother, I want a banquet. And lo and behold, the crystal chandeliers and the whole thing happens. So then he says, well, I'll tell you, why don't you come and work for me? And he says, but first sit down. Let's kind of, let's kind of talk here. So he says, have some food, have some wine. Now, there's nothing that he can see, but he sees the glass being lifted and he, you know, it's the invisible man. And he sees the food being disappeared and they sit and they talk and they have a nice time. So he said, well, why don't you come on and you work for me? And he says, I'm really a pretty pleasant fellow and it'll be kind of fun. He says, you know, I've been working for these guys for 30 years. Not once have they offered me a drink. Not once have they asked me to sit down. I think I'm going to change jobs. And so he says, I'll go with you. Let's go for it. Okay, so away they go. They pick up the frog, and away they go. He takes the frog back to the mother-in-law with the milk, and then he and Shmut Razum go. And he says every once in a while, because he can't see anything, he says, Shmut Razum, are you with me? Oh, yeah, not to worry. I'm with you. Finally, at the end of the day, he's walked a long time. He says, you know, I am really very tired. I have to rest. So he says, okay. He says, if you're so tired, why didn't you tell me that? Like this, they're gone. You know, I'm just gone with the wind. Then at one point, Smut Rosam says, you know, they're flying over the ocean. He says, you know, wouldn't it be a neat place? Let's just stop here. We'll have a golden arbor. I'll make you a golden arbor. You just stop. And then I'm going to tell you what happens. And this wonderful golden, uh, golden uh, island appears. And he says, I'll tell you what. Pretty soon, three merchants are going to come. And when these three merchants come, you give them a banquet, banquet, and you wine them and dine them and make them happy and make merry. And then he said, you trade. They each will have something to give you. You trade, but you have to get all the three things together, and you trade me for all those three things. And he says, don't worry, I'll come back. Now he's being a trickster. So he goes. And so the, 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 uh, and he just, he goes along with this whole thing. And um, pretty soon these three ships appear, and these three merchants come, and the whole thing goes on, and everybody gets regaled, and oh, it's just a delightful banquet. They're having a wonderful time. And the first merchant <clears throat> has a beautiful box. He says, I would like to have your, your magic here. So I'll trade my beautiful box. He opens up this beautiful box, and the most incredible garden appears with rare flowers and rare birds and, and uh, oh it's just incredible Whew, everyone is really impressed it is awesome he closes the box and everything disappears the next merchant says well I've got a magic hammer he tapped the hammer once and there is a battleship sailors, guns, cannons everything ready to roll he taps it a hundred times and there's a hundred of them he hides, the, he hides the, the, his axe and everything disappears the third merchant has a horn, and he really believes in blowing his horn. So he blows the horn, and what do you think appears? Wonderful land army. He's got the infantry, the cavalry, the, the cannons. I don't think they had paratroopers in those days. So there they are, you know, and then he, he blows the horn from the opposite end, and everything disappears. Well, Fidoz says, I'll tell you what I'll do. You give me all of these three things in exchange for my servant. Fine. Exchange takes place. The, and and uh, and his servant goes off. And this wonderful banquet gets on the... They have the banquets on their ships and they're sailing away. And then the first thing you know, they call for the servant. The servant doesn't appear. Well, of course, obviously he's gone. Well, the merchants think they've been tricked. They're kind of sad. They're real upset. And they, and they, they, they kind of, you know, kind of get angry for a while. And then pretty soon they just kind of sail along and carry on as usual. Well... 
Now what happens is, finally they get home. And once they're home, uh, the uh, Fidel says, you know, wouldn't that be a neat place to put up a palace? Oh, yeah, no problem. We'll be done in a minute. Choom, like this. And it was done. And, uh, but before we get into what happens next, I have to tell you, meanwhile back at the ranch, when he's out trying to find he doesn't know what, where, and he doesn't know what, meanwhile, the king calls the wife in, and he says to her, he says, well, I want you to be my queen. And she says to the king something, and I better read it to you because it's very important. She replies, where has it been seen, where has it been heard of, to take a wife from her living husband? Although he is a simple marksman, he is my husband. And the king says, You submit of your own free will, or I will use force. Today we call it rape. And she smiles, she strikes the floor, and she turns into a dove and hides as a blue dove in the forest. Well, anyway, so now back to, you know, bringing us up to date. And so she's in the forest waiting for him. He comes home. This wonderful castle is built. He opens his box. And he has the most magnificent garden all around the castle. It's great. So he's sitting in the window, admiring his beautiful garden. And what do you think happens? A little bird flies in the window. Beautiful dove flies in the window. Strikes the floor. And there he is. Gorgeous, gorgeous wife. And they are, of course, very happy to be reunited. Now, the next morning, the king wakes up. And he looks out. And what do you think he sees? A castle. In his territory? You know, I mean, it's just not done. So he calls his army, and he calls his navy. And they do battle. But what do you think Fidel does? He goes, tap, tap, tap. He has his navy. He blows his horn. He's got his army. They ride out the king. The king gets killed. And it doesn't take but a half hour or so. And you know what? They said that, that people really liked Fidel and his wife. So they asked if he would be the king and she would be the queen. Thought about it. They thought, yeah, let's try it. It's a good deal. And I'm told they lived happily ever after. Now, I don't know for sure because that was the day I had to do the washing and I had to go away. <laughs> this is a Russian fairy tale. Okay. Now, are you back in the land? When we approach the unconscious, it's like that, going we know not where. And we surely don't know what we're going to bring back. But it's a task many of us need to do or we lose our heads. Okay. We really do. This is part of what we call the individuation process. And we use myths and fairy tales and all of these as part of our process of stimulating the imagination, of helping us have a context out of which we can operate, and of understanding our place, okay? So, now let's kind of differentiate between some of the things that we're going to be talking about, and then we'll get into the fairy tales more specifically, okay? First of all, anybody have any questions? 
Yeah. I got lost at one point in the fairy tale, and that was... That's all right. Uh, I don't did too. After um, he met the merchants, and the deal was... How did they give him these three things? I mean... The, well, he gave he, up his servant, right? He gave up his servant, and he said that, uh, uh, well, if you take my servant, then I want these three things. Each one of you has to give me one of these things. And that was the garden. The, gar- the box? It wasn't Pandora's box, but it was the Garden of Eden box, okay? And then the, um, which is incidentally, from a psychological point of view, a very significant image. Because... Psyche, psyche will very often, especially as one begins uh, the individuation process, you'll have what I call a Garden of Eden dream. It's a paradise dream of some sort. Because if you're going into that rough journey, you have to have something to hold on to to say, oh, that's going to be the goal, or that's the place one day I can rest. So very often, initially, when you go into analysis, agitated, distressed, upset, whatever, you will find that there's a certain kind of relief of the initial pressure. Then you'll have a beautiful dream. And that's your dream that you can retreat to when things get really rough when you're dealing with your shadow, your negative shadow. And then, and so it's that that dream or that image that's very important to be able to have. You need to have some place in the psyche or some place in the soul. Eventually you find it becomes the sacred space within. Eventually, that's your sacred space. But... That's the, the image, then, of, of the garden. And then the second is the hammer, and the third is the horn. Okay. Anybody else have any questions? Yeah? Go, I know not whither, and bring back, I know not what. It's in the Russian fairy tales. Neat one, huh? Okay. Now, let's look at, let's just do some differentiating here. Now that I, I'm going to kind of shift you out of your, your right brain into your left brain. And then we can all prove we're brainy, huh? Okay, myth. A myth is a traditional story. And if you want any of these definitions, just go to the dictionary. Okay, so just listen. It's a traditional story ostensibly with historical basis. It serves to explain some phenomenon in nature or the origin of man, customs, institutions, religious rights of a people. So that, in other words, the myth is really a very powerful story of the psyche and of the soul. A legend is, usually a legend is a story of a saint, or the story of some kind of wondrous event that occurred somewhere, and it's one that gets handed down generation after generation, and it may belong to a group of people. So the Irish have their leprechauns, or you have the Celtic uh, stories and so forth. And these are the stories that people tell. You have the stories in Ireland, for instance, of St. Patrick and the snakes and so on. Then we have folk tales. And these are stories with legendary or mythical elements. And they're handed down usually among the common folk. It's not the kinds of stories that usually gets told in the king's castle, but among the common folk. And our folklore, of course, we can scientifically study to give us a sense of people's customs and traditions and beliefs and so on. So these are the, the part of the oral tradition that recorded people's history, a people's history. A fable. You know, your Aesop's and so on. Now these are fictitious narratives that are intended to give a moral 
truths or a moral precept. It's the way we teach children the do's and the don'ts and the shoulds and the should nots, and eventually the good old superego takes over. But if, to try to teach children initially, you have to make it in fun game. And it's only later that we can really hammer down. And a saga. Now, sagas are very special because this comes out of medieval uh, Scandinavian literature. And you will discover that, for instance, in Iceland, they have a very special, uh, very special sagas. And there are the stories of battles and customs and legends and so forth that are given in narrative prose. Uh, and again, it is a traditional history of a family or a village, a group of people. It's the oral tradition. So that kind of gives you a background of, of a lot of the images that we have that carry the story of human beings. And the one that we focus on, and of course the intent, is on fairy tales. The, the Bible, I guess, if you will, in Jungian circles for fairy tale interpretation is Marie-Louise von Franz. She's, a, she's quite a storyteller, actually. She, she loves telling stories. I do, too. And fairy tales, she says, are pure and simple expressions of the collective unconscious. And, and fairy tales are psychic process. All of this you can read just in the very first few pages that Marie-Louise Lafrance has. The significant thing about fairy tales is that we have archetypal images. And they seem to be pretty clearly articulated in fairy tales. We could take just a few of the figures in our goal, I know not whither. The frog, a very powerful image. Incidentally, uh, just as I was driving in, there was a song. Uh, oh, he's a wonderful singer, quite a balladeer. And he was he's talking about being a New Yorker. He lives out in the West Coast, um, and he's singing his song and so forth. And he's saying, who am I, who am I, and, and I am who I am, and trying to make some kind of declaration in spite of the fact that he's all confused in terms of where his territory is. But the wonderful thing, one little line in there I chuckled at as I was driving into the parking lot was uh, that he was singing, did you ever hear of a frog who wanted to be a king and became one? So that, you know, the fairy tales become, or these kinds of symbols become quite, I mean, it's a shared, it's a shared experience. And you all know about kissing the frog and it becoming a, it's a bewitched prince. I mean, so that doesn't even have to be explained. It's something that people share. Anyway, Neil Diamond, yeah, that's it, thanks. Eventually, it would have come, thanks, yeah. All right. The thing about the fairy tales that von Franz says is that there are, uh, that the material in the fairy tale is, is specific it's less specific, and it's very unconscious material over against, for instance, myths, which are really far more indicative of the collective, essentially it's unconscious consciousness. It, it truly has much more of a significance, or it's closer to the conscious realities or the conscious attitudes of people. Also in myths, you know, you have the stories of the hero, the the, uh, 
the gods. Myths are very often involved with the stories of the gods or the godlike people, whereas in fairy tales, they're just dumblings or, you know, sometimes they're even nerds and sometimes they're very interesting. And, you know, then you get the hero that he kills seven flies and he's a big hero. I mean, you know, I'm, I was just reading in, in Time magazine today that came yesterday. Uh, there is a, a folk hero, a, a, some killer, that because he, he eluded the, the sheriff and so forth, he's become a folk hero. Well, that's like killing seven flies and thinking that you're a big, big shot. Anyway, the significance about the fairy tales is that like dreams, like dreams, they have their own explanation. And if you follow, there are very meaningful threads. And if you follow even further, you will find that the motifs will complete a particular story or a particular bit of information in terms of your own psychic process. Now, von Franz says that fairy tales, regardless of where they come from, anywhere in the world, no matter how many themes you have, how many stories you have, the bottom line is they are talking about the self. And, of course, you know, in union psychology, uh, we often use the image of the diamond as, as the image of the self. And the diamond that has, that's wonderfully cut uh, and ha- all these different facets, <coughs> and all these different facets. And the more delicately it's cut, the more delicately we, we understand the unconscious, the more brilliant, the more brilliant the light it gives off and the more brilliant the fire, I guess. I don't know, I've never had one that brilliant. So, what it is then, is that the fairy tale will give us some aspect of the psyche that is relating to the self. Now, I'm assuming that most of you, at least from the faces, most of you are pretty familiar people to the the Jung material, but let me just kind of give an overview real quick. The center of the psyche or the center of wholeness, Carl Jung calls the self. Okay? And as we develop consciousness, there's a thing that the 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 bottom the, the, the foundation is the self and then as as we develop consciousness out of the unconscious, out of this collective unconscious that has the basic instincts, we have the ego. Now, the ego is the conscious part, consciousness, the part, of, the part that has to deal with the world. And, incidentally, also has to deal with the unconscious. And we define ourselves, we figure out who we are, and so forth. Now, then what happens is after we have the idea of the ego, that is, after we begin to get some sense of who I am or the me, in developmental psychology, you know, this happens around two or so, when children really begin to define that they are separate. It's very traumatic for parents, but, you know, they have to learn to live with it. But then we begin to discover that here is this conscious area and we begin to find that there are different kinds of archetypal images. We have males, we have mother, 
we have females, we have uh, uh, females, uh, and and we have aunts, and we have all these, and we have fathers, and the male, and the masculine, and uncles, and grandfathers, and so on and so on. And then we have uh, different aspects of the psyche. We have the shadow. If you're a woman, the shadow is a female, and if you're a male, the shadow is a uh, is a, a male. And then if you're a male, you'll have the feminine component called the anima. Carries the soul, and she's the most beautiful. And no words have ever been able to describe. Or if you're a female, and you have the inner masculine called animus, and though he's a simple man, a simple archer, he is my husband. So we do relate then to these different aspects, but every one of them comes out of the self. But see, if we try to relate to the collective unconscious and all those archetypes in terms of the self, without first differentiating, we have a psychotic episode. That's what, that's what really being mad is. Okay? And the way, for instance, that John Perry works with madness in adolescence is helping them reformulate, reform all that chaos, that their story, whatever the story is that they're living out, you'll see this in Myth and Madness, whatever the story is, eventually they can find a way to stabilize because every story not only tells you about the chaos and the trouble, but the solution. So, Ponfran says then that fairy tales tell the story of the self. Now, when I work analytically, people will bring in their dreams. And they'll, they'll have one, two, five, six, sometimes ten, twenty, thirty. But you'll, they'll have dreams in the week. And the most important thing to do is, as the way I approach, the, the way that I work with the dreams, and for those of you who do the dream workshop on Saturday, you'll discover this. But the way I work with the dreams is to kind of, for the week, is I take the whole week's dreams and kind of look at it as a chapter in an ongoing novel. I mean, I don't have to watch the soaps at all on TV. And nobody else does either. If they pay attention to their dreams, you've got really a drama going on each week. But each one then is, a, each week usually what you're reflecting is an issue or a complex or whatever it is. And it, it, the dreams in the week will very often be themes on the same complex. There's themes on the same issue. And it just gives you a different point of view. This is especially true if you have the same dream uh, if you have uh, three or four dreams at night, in the same night, then what you're really doing is you're looking at the front side, the back side, the upside, the downside, how many dreams you have. You're really looking from different points of view. It's a holographic image when you have multiple dreams like that. Okay? It gives you really the depth and breadth. Well, the fairy tales will do the same. Okay? They really will do the same. Now, A new book that's come out, Fairy Tales and Society, based on was based on a conference that was done by a linguistics department, published by the University of Pennsylvania. You said that it's in a store. Is it so? Shoot. Okay. Well, I, I got mine from the from this lady, but in any case, uh, in there they talk about three aspects of dreams. Uh, of fairy tales, sorry. The first is illusion. And illusion 
that in the fairy tales, the events will develop and a, a pattern begins to form. Now, sometimes these sharply differ from our reality or from the reality of the listener of the story or the reality of the storyteller. And what this means is that somehow or the other, very often, what we need to do is to look at the fairy tale because it gives us a different perspective. It gives us a different point of view. If it's an illusion, I mean, and it doesn't come into our, our own spatial reality, we then have to look at it and see, what am I missing? The other aspect that they talk about fairy tales in society is illusion. Now, we allude to a body of material, and oftentimes writers will develop a story based on some kind of fairy tale theme. Ads are famous for that. We have, for instance, the paradise themes in myth and in fairy tales. Um, and there's a, an ad, I think it, it just tickles my funny bone every time I, I hear it. There's an ad on TV right now, and there's this wimpy voice that comes on the, ad, on the TV, and it says, do we have any snacks? And this woman says, uh, oh, yeah, we got raisins. And so, you know, he ate these, and oh, they're good, and it talks all about raisins. And then he says, oh, gosh, are there any? He says, oh, are there any more? And she says, well, why don't you try this? And hands him an apple and crash and thunder. And, you know, I mean, it's like the world's coming to an end. And he says, oh, I think I'll stick with raisins. <laughs> so, I mean, now it's alluding to a very archetypal theme. The theme, of course, of paradise. Then, of course, the other thing that they talk about in fairy tales and society is paradigm. The paradigm is a model, or it's an image, or it's a plan. And so they say, what they, they talk about in this are the paradigms of trying to describe and determine the kinds of behaviors in individuals or the kinds of premises that a community will operate out of. What is the story that they're living? What is the fairy tale? What is the myth? What is, what is it that they're living now, the, this is then a very basic overview of fairy tales. We can look at it as illusion, illusion, paradigm. We look at it as information that is telling us uh, about the collective psyche. And then when you start dreaming the fairy tales, then what you have is, of course, your uh, paradigm, if you will, and the kinds of things that you are living out. I have permission from somebody to speak very briefly about a dream the other day. Somebody came in, very beautiful woman. She's just gone through a divorce. And she was also had done a lot of projection on the her husband's best friend and a lot of kind of fantasizing around him. So there was a lot of psychic energy or libido that went into him, but Nothing was constellated other than basically through her fantasies. But this woman, who had been married for many years, came in with a sequence of dreams this past week. And in one of the dreams, there are lots of different things, but one of the major 
images in one of the dreams was that she was in this ballroom and dancing and there was another man that she was dancing with a, a little man and he was dancing around in a circle and basically he had his back to her so she's kind of dancing uh, uh, and supposedly in partnership with this man but he has the back to her that's one of the themes in one of the, the dreams then in another one of her dreams this past week she was in a shopping mall not in a ballroom now but in a shopping mall and things are going along and uh, and there are these two humongous grizzly bears I mean there's they're not doing anything they're standing there like any other person and both of them have their backs to her and then in another dream she's going into a liquor store or into a store of some sort to do some shopping and there's this nerdy guy and he's kind of jumping up and down and stamping his feet and he's stamping on this metal plate and he's stamping and stamping and he's just you know creating this god-awful scene and it's so bad that eventually what happens is he rams a, 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 a pole under his chin and it goes up and people try to get out you know you know what that that doesn't you know, give you a headache if you, if you really <laughs> get into that kind of situation. Well, okay, so there it is. Now she wanted to focus on, on uh, you know, her fantasy of this guy and that guy, and now she's angry because these two guys, one was a husband, one was a husband's best friend, and then they had a falling out because of her, and it's a wonderful situation to be in, you know, for some women. And anyway, uh, now these guys are out buddy-buddies again, and she's sitting in this house, and her whole life is up for grabs. Well, we began to look at the scene. Well, you know, somehow or the other, that reminds me of a story. And she said, oh, yeah. Well, we talked about it a little bit. And the story was, and, and I'm just going to finish this, and we'll take a five-minute break, and then we'll come back and get into more material. Um, and anyway, so what happened is that here's a woman who was her... The, the, the apple of the eye of her father's eye and she is as I say an absolutely stunningly beautiful woman and uh, and so uh, you know she was daddy's darling daughter and then got married and was her husband's darling daughter or wife or whatever role she played and she was just beautiful and she was just well she was just everybody's darling she just did whatever she was supposed to do well, I said, you know, that reminds me of a story. And then I started to tell her about Rumpelstiltskin. Now, you know, if you remember, just we won't go into it in detail, but if you remember in Rumpelstiltskin, his daughter is at home, and, and her dad goes into the bar, and everybody's, you know, hauling out their pictures and talking about their grandchildren and about their kids going off on the road scholarship and who's doing what and who's made out what kind of money. This guy does it only, he's only got a daughter at home, but she's beautiful, but he's... And so everybody's bragging about everybody, all their kids' accomplishments, and he hasn't got anything to talk about, and so he creates his own fantasies. He says, hey, listen, you know, you got nothing on me. I got a daughter at home, and she can spin gold out of flax. Oh, yeah? Well, everybody talks about this, you know, that's pretty awesome, and everybody buys him a drink. He's a big shot and doesn't think anything more about it, and the word comes to the king, and the king says, hey, I got to have that in my tower. <laughs> and so he gets her hauled off to his tower, and he says, okay, here's a room full of flax. By the time the cock crows, I want some gold thread. She says, hey, I can't do a thing like that. I mean, your old man said you could in the bar. You know, and you don't do it, you lose your head. 
Well, she sits and laments and laments, and then this funny little little guy comes in and he says, "Ho, ho, ho! I, I, I got a secret." And so he's willing to do this for her, but she has to give him the rings. No, no problems. He gives the rings. The next night, same thing happens. Third night, same thing happens. But now she hasn't got any jewelry. She, first night she gave her rings. The next night she gave her necklace. She said, "Hey, this is my mom's uh, necklace. I." It, she wants to keep her head, you know, she gives up the locket. So the next day, then, she's got nothing left. She's got nothing left. Nothing is left. So he says, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal. You give me your firstborn. Well, for gosh sakes, you know, I mean, the girl's not even dating yet. So, I mean, to think of it that far in the future, when she's got to worry about her head in the morning, piece of cake. So she says, sure, no problem. Well, you know, as luck would have it, she gets out of her captivity and she's walking away and here's this prince, he sees her and he says, I have got to have her. And so they get married and in 10 months' time, because in those days everybody didn't have babies before 10 months' time after they got married. So in 10 months' time, they have a baby, the baby gets to be a year old and what do you think happens? This little guy shows up and the story unfolds. He says, look, I, you know, it would be pretty hard to give up my baby all my potential so what happens is he says all right find out my name well is it tom dick and harry no it's not tom dick and harry i'll give you two more chances and tomorrow night i'll be back because it was three nights he went there three nights she has for finding the name the story goes the next night she doesn't know it it's not pete and it's not dick and it's not beelzebub so i don't know if that's a female name but whatever and then she the third night and and so they're brainstorming because of course she sent messengers all out and uh, they brainstormed to see, you know, what none of the names really sound right. And, and you know, she's, she's only got three chances now to save her baby. And so uh, one guy says, you know, it, I had a weird experience. I'm way out in the woods, way, I mean way out in the woods. And there was this weird little guy. He was dancing around in a circle. I couldn't see him, but he was dancing around in a circle around the fire. And... Um, and he was doing this jig and he was saying this thing and he says the one thing that I did hear him say is that she'll never be able to guess my that Rumpelstiltskin is my name and she thought let's try it so the next night he comes and she says well is your name George no he gets smugger and smugger well is it uh, and she names a number and she says well is it Rumpelstiltskin well he is he jumps up and down and up and down and up, and he gets so furious that he stamps his foot through the floorboard, and he gets so angry, he grabs the other foot, and he just tears himself apart. Now, that sounds kind of familiar from those dreams, doesn't it? What do we have? We have this darling woman always having to do what, you know, because she doesn't relate to her own inner reality. She didn't relate to her own inner animus, but was defined by outside male images. When she could finally name her own inner masculine, the powers from the outside, you know, a lot of times people don't like giving up their power. They get kind of angry, and therefore they say, I'm going to have a divorce. That sometimes is what happens when they no longer have the power and or the control. Or when you change too much. Sometimes that gets pretty painful when you change too much. Okay. Well, now, 
One of the things that our fairy tale, or that our story told us, is she said to her husband, she said, well, what you need to do is uh, you have to learn, you have to win me, and then you have to learn to live with me, and that's what we have to do in the psyche. But then she says, be of good cheer. Pray to God, lie down to sleep. The meaning is wi- the morning is wiser than the evening. And by that, of course, it means that we, when we go into the unconscious, whether in sleep or whatever it is, we bring up from the unconscious the wisdom. We have to trust that. Now, we can't trust the unconscious unless we know that there's order and organization. I mean, good gracious, if any of you have ever walked into a psychiatric ward and watched people who are turned inside out, that is, they're living out the collective unconscious, that's a pretty scary thing until you begin to see the patterns or you begin to see the meaning. It's like learning a language. If you go to another country, I mean, it's just nothing but a bunch of garbled sound. But eventually, if you begin to listen, you begin to see uh-huh, phrases and then words. And there comes a point, and you don't know when it happens, but like this, all of a sudden, everything makes sense. You can understand what somebody is saying to you, or at least a couple of the words. Well, the same thing happens when we deal with the unconscious. And the same thing happens if we understand the structure. So by understanding the structure of fairy tales, also gives us tools to understand the structure of our dreams. It also gives us tools to understand the structure of the psyche. Because strangely enough, there is a lot of consciousness in the unconscious. As a matter of fact, I once had a dream to that effect. I think I've shared that before in different classes. Uh, An aunt of mine who is my shadow, that is she exactly opposite to me. She's very sensation. I mean, her, her house is so neat that it's just... <laughs> and anyway, so uh, the thing is that uh, she has a shopping bag filled with books. And most of the time, she just reads romances. I mean, that's one area that we do share, but still. And uh, I do read a few other things, too, from time to time. And so she uh, had this book by Carl Jung. It was the 19th volume. Uh, not, he was got 18 or so. The 19th volume called um, Consciousness in the Unconscious. And then it was, you know, after that, I really began to, things began to fall into place. So what we have to do is understand the structure. And we start by the structure of the fairy tales. And von Franz goes into this in much more detail. First of all, in fairy tales, we find timelessness and spacelessness. Go, I know not whither. And bring back, I know not what. <clears throat> now, many times I will explain this in, cla- in, in different classes, depending upon what we're, class we're talking about. But one of the things that's very interesting is to note that fairy tales often compensate, as dreams do, for a conscious attitude. Traditionally, males are linear in time, and they're also very spatially oriented. See, women often have images of the circle. Well, you know, there's no space there. It's just kind of a, you know, it grows. Especially, you know, women really know how that space grows and contracts and all kinds of things. So males psychologically, if we say from a traditional point of view, the consciousness attitude of males is time and space. 
doing things and they have they make appointments and they do things on time and they've got the train schedules and they that's the way it goes and you work in this particular place and you go to that place and you have your car to get you from this place to that place and so that would be quote unquote the masculine consciousness females on the other hand you know i mean uh, tomorrow next day it's okay nine months from now you know i mean you're not going to rush it the things are going to grow as they grow pregnant women know that for sure well then in the fairy tales what happens with our wonderful Rumpelstiltskin. By the time the cock crows, she has to achieve a task. Hmm? And so there's always a time restraint on women in the fairy tales. They've got to do the stuff on time or suffer the consequences. Now, males, on the other hand, in the fairy tales, well, gosh, they don't know how far. I mean, Maybe it's close, or could be far, or maybe could be an hour, or maybe a month. We've got the wonderful story of dumb Hans, Hans who goes out and you know serves this cat because he's supposed to get a horse, so he serves a cat. Now, if you can imagine something like that, but in any case, he serves this cat, and he doesn't know whether it's for seven days or seven weeks or seven years. He really doesn't know for how long he serves her, but. The point of all of that is, is when he's at the end of his service, supposedly he's supposed to get his horse. Well, of course, at the end of his service, he goes home and he, he says, well, you know, how about my wages? And she says, oh, well, go home and, and, and I'll, I'll send them to you. Well, you know, that's kind of risky business. And But in any case, he trusts her and he goes home. And, of course, you know the story. Big, wonderful horses and carriage and gorgeous princess. And, because it really wasn't a cat. It really was a princess. But in any case, but the point is he doesn't know. He doesn't know how long or anything of the sort. So we have to understand then that dreams will often be timeless and spaceless because there is nowhere in the collective unconscious. It is that ubiquitous kind of space or whatever. It is there always. It always has been and always will be. And Oh, good gracious. It's really awesome. Then the second thing that we look at in fairy tales is the cast of characters. When Franz says, count your people at the beginning and count them at the end. Sometimes you add a few and sometimes you take away a few. Sometimes you have to complete something and sometimes you have to kind of get rid of some of this excess. So it's always, you know, keep track. Keep track of, of your characters. And then she says there is what she calls the exposition. That is, it's the problem. It tells you what is the problem. What's the issue? What is it that provides the energy for you to be able to solve the story? What are the ups and downs? What are the ins and outs? What's the adventure? What's the tension as it builds? Then we have what Franz calls, she was a Greek Greek and, and, and Latin scholar, you know, the lysis. That is, what's the end result? If you follow the thread, all the way through, what's the result? Sometimes you have a happy resolution. Sometimes, because they live happily ever after. Sometimes you have catastrophe. She says in primitive stories, it, they, you know, they don't seem to have an ending. It just peters out. But she says sometimes you will have the stories where they're happy, and they have a happy ending, and also a sad ending. I mean, I really can't tell you whether they lived happily ever after because that was my day I had to wash clothes. She says with the gypsies, 
they'll say something like this, and I'm quoting right now from her book, and she says, They married and were happy and rich to the end of their lives. But we, poor devils, we're standing out here shivering and, see, and, and, and sucking our teeth with hunger. And then they go around and pass the hat, poor fellows. Now, when we go into the unconscious, or when we go into the fairy tales and therefore into unconscious material, we bring material from the collective unconscious. We bring it from our own personal consciousness. Hmm? This is with this woman. She, her dreams reflected her reality out here. The dreams reflected, because no male was relating to her, they had their backs. Re, the dreams relate to her particular psychology. That is, they don't, uh, she didn't have, uh, basically she was just kind of observing and walking through life right at this point in time. And the dreams reflect her, her, her uh, archetypal base at this point, where she's operating from. And as we talked about it in terms of the fairy tale, that's really basic collective archetypal material. And so the, a fairy tale or a dream, you look at it from all these different points of view. Okay. So what we do then is we look at the symbolism. We look at the archetypal data. Now, what's an archetype? It's a wonderful word. The archetype, essentially, is instinctive energy. And it is energy that we don't... I mean, how? what, what does an instinct look like? We know what the behavior is like when we're acting instinctively, but we don't know what an instinct instinct looks like. So all we can do is create an image. And we create an image in a symbol of some sort. Okay. I don't think we have... A whole lot of time, but let me just show you, for instance, some, whoopsie, that's all right, some symbols. These are some military patches. Here is a wonderful image, an archetypal image. Here we have a dragon. If you come to my house, you'll see lots of dragons in my, in my windows, in my, by my sandbox. I'm into dragons this, this year. And here's this wonderful sword. Represents consciousness, represents the ability to, 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 get one's kingdom. After all, didn't, uh, didn't the once and forever king have to pull his sword out of the stone? It reflects our own inner kingdom. It's the ability that we have of protecting our space. It's the way of cutting the umbilical cord from the great mother. All different kinds of wonderful things get constellated around sword as an archetypal image. Or the dragon. You have to slay the dragon. You have to do all different kinds of things. Symbols and archetypal images. The archetypal images. All right. Now, whenever we talk about a tale, always remember, in spite of the fact that we may be able to translate it into some experiences of your own particular life, but we're always talking psychology. Okay. For instance, if you have a dream and say, well, you know, that reminds me of such and such a person. Well, it may be, but it may be, it's still psychology. Don't ever try to think that when you dream a fairy tale and you are relating it to another person that it is, in fact, that person. Okay, It is your psychology about or constellated around that person. Now, how do we try to understand the fairy tales? We do it essentially through amplification. 
we get the image of the frog or we get the image of the dragon or we get the image of something or the other. Mm-hmm. We amplify. And then, of course, we interpret and we interpret it through the psychological language. If you don't mind, what I would like to do is just very briefly, very, very briefly, share with you what amplification looks like. Well, that wouldn't be too long. Well, that's all right. We'll just do a little bit of it. This is a military patch. And it's worn by the Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Service of the 39th Air Wing in, uh, with the United States uh, Air Force in uh, Iceland. They have these helicopters. They're called the Jolly Greens. And they go out and they do rescuing. So on one, uh, one uh, shoulder, they have this patch that they call the Pregnant Angel. Okay? It's a wonderful image. And she's holding the world. And it says underneath, it says on top the Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Service, underneath that others may live. And then on this side, on the other sleeve, they have the Jolly Green Giant. So you've got the Great Mother and the Great Father. Now, amplification looks like this, and I'm going to read it so fast that it's just going to make your head spin because I don't want to spend a lot of time about this. We have the the shield here, and we think about the shield. We have the great round, which is the mother. Look at the colors. All these, every one of these things would be amplified. But let's just take one of the images, the great mother. Nyman explains the great mother is not simply a vessel. She is also the dynamic of life contained within it. So I can show you, for instance, in amplification, images of the great round. These are from very ancient civilizations. Can you see these? You see this in the back back of Eric Neumann's thing, book on the great mother. So we have these uh, sculptures from the classical period, and they show the con- mother as the great mother as a container. Now here we have the banner, and at the bottom of the banner is a stylized flower and con- uh, container. We have that in here also. And, of course, each one of these is manifesting dynamics of life. Now, and also of, of warmth and so forth. The color we have now, we've got the yellow, we've got all this. Now we see. The elemental warmth seems suggested by the golden ray which pierces the dark sky and illuminates the Great Mother herself. But an even more important quality represented by it is the light associated with knowledge and understanding. These associations are reinforced by the wings of the Great Mother, giving her the unusual character of an angel. Angels also symbolize enlightenment, and they are messengers between heaven and earth. Our helicopter people are too, remember. But they are generally masculine angels are. The presence of a feminine angel here has two important functions. It helps to emphasize the caring as opposed to the devouring aspects of the Great Mother, which would be death. These are life-giving people. And it deepens the integration of the physical and the spiritual. This is a highly appropriate emblem for a rescue team, and the men themselves seem to recognize its appropriateness, for they refer to the patch as the pregnant angel. 
the nomenclature itself expresses and recognizes the spiritual as well as the physical value of saving lives. And then it go, there's, we can go on and talk about that. But let's talk briefly then about the masculine. Again, this is just to illustrate amplification. The masculine figure on our patch certainly represents the principle of uh, fructifying and, and so forth. He's the jolly green giant, a modern image of vegetation and, incidentally, the trademark of the canning company. It is a significant the squadron goes by the name of Jolly Green, an expression which is also applied to a type of helicopter used in rescue operations. Yet he shows the differentiation associated with even this emergent masculine, that is, he's closer to the Earth Mother, so still more primitive, but we see it from his garb. It is reminiscent of the Nemean lion skin which Hercules wore as a reminder of his first great labor. The enormous task of this half-god, half-man reminds us of the heroism of the men in the Jolly Green, snatching defenseless people from the jaws of death. So if it reminds us of the first labor of Hercules, that would seem reasonable. And so on. We go on and on as we begin to amplify even further the symbolism of the archetypal, the archetypal symbolism here of the, the military patch. So I just wanted to show you how one just does this amplification. Reminds me of this, it reminds me of that, it reminds me of something else. This is what it means in this culture, this is what it means in that culture. And if you want to know more, you can look at the dictionaries on symbolism and see how a symbol can be amplified. All right. So, what do we do? We look at the fairy tale, go I know not whither, and bring back I know not what. And what are some of the big points that we bring out? We've been bringing them out periodically throughout the session. The first and foremost is the state of the masculine psyche. He's part of the collective. He's one of the boys. He's not differentiated, is he? He's still one of the archers. The king is unmarried. We have an unbalanced situation. So right in the beginning, we have a king who doesn't have any female, a steward, hmm, and a bird. Not even the personification of the feminine. And so all the story portrays at this point in time is the primitive male who does the service to the king who is unmarried. In other words, he cannot create further. Okay, then we find this young man going out and doing his job and suddenly coming across this wonderful image of the dove. Now, you all have associations with doves. We've got the peace dove. We've got the doves that are starving to death in Italy because of the snow. But here we have a particular kind of dove. And in his, his business, before he has the opportunity to kill her, she speaks. This is the voice of the Holy Spirit, but it's the feminine spirit. Because there's no spirit at this point, no feminine energy in the story. And so she has to be introduced. Now, she's wounded, which says when you don't honor the feminine, she is wounded. It speaks very clearly to that. And then we find the story says, she says, you take me home and put me in the window, which means she isn't caged. She has some freedom, and he has to trust that she's going to stay there. In other words, it's the trusting of this process of the unconscious images as they come up, as they belong to him. You don't have to possess it. 
You don't want to be possessed. So she, as she starts to move into her own unconscious, he gives her a sharp, sharp rap, and what does happen? That's an initiation task. In her case, of course, she becomes personified as the feminine. Now, if you're going to be knighted, if any of you go to London to be knighted for whatever reason, one of the things that you're going to do is get the sharp tap of the sword on each shoulder. If any of you have gone through confirmation, you will get a slap on the cheek. Okay. It's always that, that bringing to consciousness. Okay. When you get trans, when there is transformation, it's like, wow, something happens. Something really makes you attend, makes you take notice. Well, then what happens is this whole domestic scene, and we could go through that, and we could go through a, a lot of the different things, but I think what I really want to spend the last couple uh, minutes, or the, uh, just another minute relating to, is the one image. We do a little bit of amplification, the one image, where the mother-in-law, with her two big giants, you know, her two jolly green giants, she takes Fado to the sea, and it's the bottom of the sea. There's no bottom. And she calls because she's she's gotten all the land animals. Now, mind you, in the evolutionary scale of, of, of Earth, if one is an evolutionist and uh, not a creationist, or well, one can be both, actually. But if you're an evolutionist, you remember that the sea is more primitive, and the sea animals are usually more primitive, right? Because it was only afterwards that they crawled up onto the land, according to the evolutionists. So not only do you have to go back to the instincts and the helping animals, but you've got to go back to the depths of creation. Back to the depths of creation. And even then they don't know this place. I mean, this is too far back. Except this little frog. Now she's old and she's crippled and she does have a, a walk. Okay? But this bottomless, bottomless place in the ocean. So powerful. Such a significant place. Because the theme of I know not whither gets repeated again and again and again. He doesn't know where the ball is going to go. You don't know how far, because if it's a bottomless part of the ocean. So it's such a powerful theme that gets carried out throughout this story. He doesn't know what's going to happen when he takes this dove home. He doesn't know. He can't ask for anything in the market. He has to take what comes, you see. That's one of the most powerful and, and very difficult tasks in masculine psyche, in male psyche, if you know, you're going to be the stereotypic male who needs to be the hero and be in charge and have the, the sword, you know, you can cut things, you can get right to the heart of the matter and all this. And to finally move into the place of the feminine means you have to sit back and you have to learn what a woman has to learn when she gets pregnant. You don't know what you're going to get. You don't know how long it's going to take. You have a general idea. And you have to sit and you have to trust this single cell is someday going to be a very complex human being. Okay. So it's that process of sitting back and trusting. It's trusting the feminine. Okay. Now, women, on the other hand, if we were going to do this story in terms of feminine consciousness, then we would have to do the story about the adventure and the movement and the skill, you see, and recognizing that sometimes the skills, if we develop the skills too much or you get too animacy, 
and then we violate the feminine. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. So, oops. So before we run out of tape and time, I think I should kind of close here because I would like to leave it open if there are any questions with people because you know, this is a lot of stuff. And you probably have psychic overload and I'll go home and have glorious fairy tales tonight, fairy tale dreams. Yes, ma'am. A lady who, who is over-identified with the masculine, she has too much animus. Is that what, she's possessed by the animus. What will her story be like? How would she find She would have to redo the feminine, right? She would have to trust the feminine. And that is very hard. But it would be a different story frame for her because she's a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is she's got some basic instincts to follow. So we have in the story of Psyche and Amour, you see, where she has to... She has to learn to trust the masculine, but she's also not to be unconscious. She's not supposed to just stay in that unconscious place. She's got to be more conscious. And when she violates the terms of the contract, you know, is, uh, in, in that particular story, she, she's not supposed to look at her husband. You know, he's, they come and have a great time at night, but she's not supposed to know it, you know. And so the thing is, when she looks upon his face and he wakes up, then, you know, her, her fairy tale, when she becomes more conscious, her fairy tale bubble breaks. And then she's got to go off on the labors and she's got to do all different kinds of things. She's got to get into her own despair. And, uh, and then in that process, she ultimately connects to the feminine. So you see that in the Psyche of Moore story. That's a very powerful tale of the feminine who's in, into the animus. And, he, uh-huh, and she's into the animus because he's a mother's son. It's, oh, it gets very complex. I mean, we could take that story and take 10 days to, to work it out. Yeah? In the tale you told, uh, what image comes through uh, to designate the self in all of that material? Of course, all of it would peak, but is there any particular one that you point to? The voice, the servant, yeah, yeah. Because when he relates and invites, invites that servant, quote-unquote servant, he never sees it. We never do see the face of the self. If we do, that's insanity. That's madness. Of course, there isn't one of the characters in there that does, isn't an aspect. It isn't that isn't a part of the self, but they're you know the differentiated aspects of the self. Anybody else have a question? I have a question. Well, how does this uh, an ability to see the self relate to the concept of say to see God is to is to destroy the self? You might say it's in the Old Testament, not a theme. Well, I think in the Old Testament it says you cannot. You cannot uh, see, you cannot look upon the face of God because if you do, you lose, you're dead. Basically, you're dead. I mean, you cannot get that into the collective unconscious. Or they say it's madness, it's insanity. And so you can only do it indirectly. And that's why we have the symbols and we have all these different things. And so Moses couldn't look, he could only see the burning bush, you see. Or the backside. Or the backside, exactly. So it's essentially the same thing as what you're saying in fairy tales. It could be. It could be. Basically, you cannot look. Yeah, I mean, you can't look that far. But you have the image, the diamond, uh, the mandalas are, are, are mandalas are, are beautiful images of the self. The golden ball. He follows the golden ball. That would be another aspect of the self. Well, in this particular case, it wasn't a golden ball. It was just a ball.
No, the self as an archetypal image is that ordering principle within the unconscious. And see, none of the archetypes, the instincts are seen directly. We can only see it through our own images, and that's basically what we're talking about. But if we, if we don't keep the ego active, then what happens is, uh, or the active so that it, you know, it stays in the world, then it gets sucked into the unconscious and it, there's a kind of a swimming around and then you see this in madness. And so if you look at Roots of Renewal and Myth and Madness by John Perry, you see then how they have to tease out the ego again so that you can make sense out of what's going on in the unconscious. You have to have the structure. That's the, that's the bottom line. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.